Hi, I'm Christian Carrion. I'm your coworker. I've been a driver coordinator at Viho for about a month now, and I love it. I've worked in customer service and retail environments for years and years, but one of the things that I enjoy most outside of that area of my life is podcasting. Broadcasting in general, I love it so much. I built a studio in my apartment and everything. Washington, D.C. This is Stranger Than Christian. I'm the host of a podcast called Stranger Than Christian. Every episode, I have a completely unrehearsed, unscripted conversation with a complete stranger from somewhere around the world. You're so open to discussion. I was like, well, why not? <laughs> you have understood that they were not planning on it's killing It's amazing us. that someone Robin. didn't, like, get seriously, seriously hurt. or to apologize killed. for my intelligence, for my past. Easily the best interview I've ever had. I've been doing it for over a year now. I've gotten thousands of listens, and it's so much fun. Such a rewarding experience. Working at Viho, for me, represents my first ever remote job. I'm used to being in front of people, whether it's at a front desk or in an office or in a retail setting, so this is completely uncharted waters for me, and I'm having a great time. But in this experience, I noticed an opportunity. We have over 150 employees from all corners of the globe, and I wondered if I could get to know each of my coworkers one at a time. And I wondered even further if I could do that through the lens of my type of podcast, complete, unrehearsed, honest conversation. What better way is there to get to know somebody than by talking to them? And with the encouragement and cooperation of Viho, I am proud to be able to begin bringing this idea to reality. Viho the People, a brand new podcast series hosted by me, Christian Carrion. Join me as I get to know each of my 150 coworkers from all over the world, one conversation at a time. Available beginning Wednesday, April 28th, on all major streaming services. So back in March, when I thought I wanted to work from home, I wanted to work remotely, I landed a position as what they call a driver coordinator with a company called Viho, V-E-H-O. Now, what Viho does, they're sort of, they're like if you took the core concept of Amazon Prime and attached the gig economy mentality of something like DoorDash or Uber. So imagine if instead of delivering food for people, you were delivering their packages. Viho worked with a lot of different companies, mainly things like meal kits and prescription eyewear, things like that. Um, and these companies would license Viho's whole platform and we would handle their deliveries. And it was really cool. You know, we were kind of prided ourselves on direct contact with the uh, person who was getting the package and we'd send you a picture once it was at the door, uh, that kind of thing. And so my role was to be a driver coordinator, which meant that I was the first point of contact for anybody who wanted to become a driver on the platform. So it was more or less the same process as you would go through if you wanted to drive for Uber or DoorDash or anything like that. Uh, you submit some proof of identity and you show us that you have a decent enough phone that you won't have a problem using the app, we'll be able to communicate with you, and you'll be on the road. So I and my team, we were collectively the first point of contact for those people. And it was enjoyable. You know, I had this idea because I'm always thinking of how to use my established talents for good. 
especially in a professional setting. And this show that I've been doing week in, week out for over a year now, I've always thought that it would be easily convertible to another outlet. I always thought that maybe the idea of having somebody who can easily facilitate conversation would be helpful in other settings. And so I brought it to my supervisor and I said, hey, has the company ever thought about producing a podcast? You know, we're 150 remote employees. People live all over the world in this company. And I'm sure that I will meet half a dozen of them. What if we gave everyone the opportunity to meet everybody? I can facilitate those conversations. As a result, meet all of the people I work with and introduce these people to everyone else as well. And they loved it. And they went through human resources and kind of figured out some of the red tape. And I was for lack of a better phrase, on the road. And I was interviewing all my coworkers, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, one thing led to another. The job ended up not being something that I... I don't want to say I was uncomfortable with it. I think that altogether the idea of remote work just didn't really sit right with me. I used to tell my friends, the good thing about remote work is that you're working from home. But the bad thing about remote work is that you're working from home. And I always felt this disconnect between what I was doing and the rest of the house. Like the rest of the house was moving and I was home, but I felt so blocked off and so distracted with work that I didn't feel present. And it just started to make me feel very strange. I missed the process of getting up and getting dressed and going out to work and coming home and missing my wife while I was at work. I missed all those things. So long story short, the podcast, we got a few episodes out, but ultimately it never really reached past those three episodes. There was a little bit of I'll use the phrase again, a little bit of red tape concerning using the company's name, using the logo and branding it as a sanctioned, a company sanctioned project. So when I recorded these episodes, I would release them every other week in our Slack channel. Um, so Slack, the app that people use to communicate at work and, you know, keep tabs on all their employees and things like that. I used to release it specifically there just as a raw MP3 and everybody loved it. And that's I don't want to understate that either. Everybody loved this idea. I was getting messages from the CEO of this company telling me that he was a fan of the podcast. He listens to it. He thinks it's great. And I'm really proud of that. I am regretful that this project didn't go further, but I'm hopeful that at some point in the future, listen, who knows? Maybe there's another company out there. Maybe there's another remote company who feels that they would benefit from an introduction from all of their employees, from a large percentage of their employees. You know, remote work, and it's one of the first things I noticed, being a people person is sort of insular in that you only meet the few people that you work with day in, day out. You'll have meetings with other people sometimes, but you know, you don't get that same sense of camaraderie that you do in an office or at a front desk or at a brick and mortar job. So if you are a company or have a company or work for a company that you think would benefit from this easygoing, informative, fascinating approach to conversation and getting to know another person. If you think there's a place out there that might benefit from that, email me at strangerthanchristian at gmail.com. I would be happy to do that. Now, I'm not holding out hope. I'm not sitting by the phone waiting for it to happen. If it happens, great. But if not, I'll be okay too. I can't tell you and I mean, I clearly can tell you because I mention it all the time, just how fulfilled I am doing Stranger Than Christian. It's the highlight of my creative life. And so that being said, what I thought I might do this week 
is share with you the three roughly 30-minute episodes of Viho the People that I put together before I left the job. And I think you'll find it fascinating. I got to talk to, you know, even those three people, there's a wide variety of experiences, a wide variety of of, of, of life lessons that they bring to the table and a wide variety of personalities as well. I think you'll really find it fascinating and I hope you do. Let me know what you think. Again, strangerthanchristian at gmail.com. This is going to be a sort of one-off experimental project this week. So I'm very hopeful that you who are listening will enjoy it. And I'll quickly let you know that the format is largely the same. It's a very conversational style of interview. I'm getting to know these people, but I'm also offering information about myself as well. Again, that mutual honesty provides a great, solid foundation for interesting conversation. And I think you'll find that that holds true throughout these three episodes. And by the way, shout out to my friend Zach Rosenberg from West Haven, Connecticut for hooking me up with the theme song. Uh, the theme is actually an instrumental version of a song that he and his band released uh fairly recently on Bandcamp. So check out the notes for this episode on whatever streaming service you're listening to. There will be a Bandcamp link there as well as the name of the band, name of the song, name of the album, any information you want to know. Um, the one bit of feedback I got when I was making this was that the theme song needed to be faster. So I'm sorry, Zach, that I had to speed it up a little bit, but I think it is a perfect theme song nevertheless, and I'm very thankful that you and your people let me use it. Anyway, here are the three episodes of Viho the People. Enjoy. All right, and I am talking, and I can hear me. I still can hear me. You're not supposed so to hear yourself. How can you not? Oh, I can... Yeah, I hear my. Should I turn off? I don't know. Testing one, two, three, four, five. Six. Oh, I don't hear me anymore. All right, can you hear me though? I can hear you. Yes. Okay. Perfect. All right, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump right into it, Zach. It's just a regular conversation, super low pressure. We're just getting to know you. Awesome. I am Zach Cohen, born and raised in Long Island, New York. Grew up in a town called Merrick. My role at VR, I'm an operations manager. I oversee the driver support operation, non-live ops operation, driver earnings, as well as the driver onboarding and registration process. Tell me about life on Long Island. My wife was born on Long Island. Yeah, I, life on Long Island. So it's it's a suburb of, I think Long Island's got an interesting uh, rep or or stereotype to people who kind of aren't there, especially from the Jersey Shore and all that stuff. But I like living on Long Island. My town is is one of your prototypical American suburbs. Definitely a commuter town into Manhattan. Uh, I lived about 10, 15 minutes away from the train station. Probably about half of my friends' parents commuted into, into the city. It's about a 40, 45-minute train ride right into Penn Station. And uh, the prototypical American towns, I would say, where you can you can bike ride. You can uh, walk on a sidewalk to everyone's homes. Kind of you know, definitely a community feel. Um, it was densely populated, but densely populated in like the suburban feel. You know, you walk outside your backyard and you're seeing everyone's houses, but it's not like you're seeing apartment complexes or, or high rise buildings. So it was really nice in that sense. I also grew up on the south shore of Long Island, so I was about ten minutes away from Jones Beach. So my town was right on the bay. 
and uh, I was able to go to the beach a lot. And you obviously are familiar with, you, you remember Hurricane Sandy, right? Right. So my town is on the bay, and my house is at least a half a mile from any of the water of the bays. But the night of Hurricane Sandy, you know, our power goes out, everyone's very nervous and scared. And I go outside to take a look, and there was water rushing down my street, and it was halfway up my driveway. And I don't live, I live, you know, you can't see the water. Like, so I have some friends that grew up, they had their house was on the water, but there was water halfway up my driveway. And that was pretty crazy. And like, you know, growing up on an island right near the water was like, that's one thing that sticks in my mind. It's funny, that was always a fear of my wife's as well, because we lived in Connecticut, and, you know, we're right on the opposite side of Long Island Sound. And she was always afraid that, like, our town's going to get flooded one day, because she was always, she grew up being afraid of that on Long Island. Yeah, I mean, complete pivot in the conversation, but my cousin lives in South Florida. He, uh, he lives in Delray. All of the, the facts and the science in climate change point to the F- South Florida coast and just any of the coast in Florida being a very precarious place to live in because of hurricanes. And I'm like, I hope your, uh, your house is further enough inland to protect yourself from that because all of these storms are only getting worse and it's, it's frightening. It is scary. I've talked to a lot of people, like when I do my regular podcast, I've talked to a lot of people who've survived natural disasters and hurricanes and floods and fires. I don't know. It, it, it makes me realize how unprepared I am for something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like now living in Denver, I there's, there's no water around here. And Denver, whereas like Kansas and then eastern Colorado gets tornadoes, but since Denver is a city from my lack of knowledge of how tornadoes start, um, how they form. If there's, if there's big buildings, the, the wind just doesn't pick up in that sense. But then there's the wildfires. Like last summer, there were you know, pretty terrible wildfires that reached Boulder. Um, Adam, a- Adam uh, one of the product engineers on our team, he took a, shared a picture with us of his backyard last year. And I mean, the sky was bright orange. And he lives in Boulder. It's a populated area and the f- wildfires are there. So... Yeah, these natural disasters are pretty frightening. Do you come from a large family? In a small, immediate family. I got my, both my parents and then just one sibling. But I got a good crew of cousins. I'm really close. My dad has two siblings, and they each have two kids. So there's six of us, and we're super close. And then on my mom's side, um, there is another four, like two sets of cousins, and I'm close with them, not as close. Um, but overall, like, you know, because of the extended family being very close, I consider myself having a large family. But the immediate family, there's only four of us. And do you have family spread out all over the place or are they mostly localized in New York? Yeah. So when I grew up, everyone lived in New York. Um, I didn't have family outside of my grandparents who moved down to Florida. Everyone lived in New Jersey, the Westchester, Long Island area. And it's funny, like a lot of us have been moving away. New York is just way too expensive these days. Um, that's one of the reasons why I personally moved away. I have a friend, I have a, one of my cousins moved down to Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, another one of my cousins moved down to Florida, like I just mentioned. One of my cousins is currently living in Chicago. So we're starting to move away throughout the country. And I'm curious to see where it all plays out in the coming years. It's interesting, right, to like watch your family kind of 
take root in other places. I my I was born in Connecticut, and uh, I have one brother. He lives in Maryland now. I live in in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which I never, you know, life just takes you places. I had would have no idea that I would end up here, um, like later in life. But you just kind of you just kind of follow your heart, you know. Yeah. What brought you to Lancaster, Pennsylvania? I met my wife. So. She was living here. She's from Long Island originally, but by the time I had met her, we met on Facebook in 2012, and she had been living in Pennsylvania for about 10 years because her dad got a job working quality control for Dart Container, and one of their real famous products are like the red Solo cups that Mm -hmm. you see at parties and stuff. He did quality control um, for their factory in a little town called Leola, which is right outside of Lancaster. So we met online about a decade ago. And uh, that year, she moved to Connecticut with me, and it, everything, you know, the rest is history. So when you say you met on Facebook, like, was it a shared interest group, or you met on, in, on Facebook for, like, online dating purposes? It was not for dating at all. All right, all right, so I'll tell you what happened. I was working as the manager of the campus radio station. I went to Southern Connecticut State University, and I was doing a fundraiser where we were going to be on the air for 24 hours straight. And before we did the show, the local newspaper did this article on me. And so there was one – it was like a Saturday afternoon. I was in the newspaper, and it was a big picture of me like leaning on my desk. I had like a stack of board games on 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 my desk. And the picture got shared on Facebook. And I was tagged in it. Now, Kat and I had one mutual friend. And we had this one mutual friend for different reasons. I was friends with him because I'm really into old TV. I'm really into old game shows. And this guy was too. So we had that connection. He knew this girl, Kat, because she is a big fan of Conan O'Brien, the talk show host. And my friend happened to be on an episode of his show when he went to uh, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum in Los Angeles. He showed Conan around for that segment. So that's how he knew her. So we just had this one mutual friend that connected the two of us. And years later, I did a show in California and I got to meet this guy in person for the first time and kind of thank him for being that sole connection between us. But that's that's how we met. She saw the picture and she added me. And the first thing she ever said to me was happy birthday because it was my birthday the day she added me. And then you just start chatting. And from there, it's like we should meet. And that's awesome. It's been one continuous sentence between us ever since. It's just been a, it's been a nine year long conversation. We've never stopped talking since that point. That is quite the story, and you definitely are like one of the your your list of hobbies is long, which is amazing. Oh, we're going to get into yours though, because I I first of all I don't know anything about lacrosse, and you played lacrosse in high school. I played lacrosse in high school. I played football. Um, this is I have a funny story about. So I, I played football my. I think 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. And now I wasn't very good. I was on the C team. I am an average athlete, and I was okay in, in football. And, like, obviously a lot of the people who played football also played lacrosse. You know, the co- it was one was fall, one was spring. So the really good athletes just played every single sport as often as possible. And I lacrosse I was good at. I picked up lacrosse in, like, 6th grade, and I, I – was pretty good at it. Was I amazing? No, I was, you know, probably like first off the bench is how I would describe my, my lacrosse skills, which was pretty good. Like growing up in a Jewish neighborhood on Long Island, um, my high school did not make the lacrosse in, in varsity. We did not make the lacrosse playoffs in high school for like five years. Not many famous Jewish lacrosse players, I guess. Yeah. I, I, you know, actually, 
I don't know if it's still like this, but when I was growing up, so I graduated high school in 2008, lacrosse, the great schools, was very focused on the Northeast. And, like, I mean, that's where, you know, the, the Jewish population is focused there as well. So it did overlap. But my high school, my senior year, like, one of my proud moments is we, made, we were the first team to make the playoffs in lacrosse in my high school in, like, five or six years. So that was a pretty proud moment. But the funny story that I want to share is it is my freshman year spring. So I, I played my and JV football. I might have, you know, there was, I didn't get one minute on the field during a close game. I was the, the person that went in when we were either up 21 or down 21. And I was okay with that. I was having fun. And then spring practice came around and they were busting our ass. We were running, lifting, you know, tackling. And I don't like getting tackled. I had black and blues everywhere. I bruised like a peach. So after one of these practices, I go into, into the coach's locker room, into the coach's office, and, I, and I'm going to tell him that I'm, I'm not going to continue playing. It's spring practice to prepare for the fall. So it's not like I was letting him know at the last moment. So I'm like, coach, I, I think I'm done. Football's not, you know, for me, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, come on, Zach. You're my guy. Like you were, you're the best player on the C team, and I'm like, thanks, coach. Like, what kind of compliment is that? <laughs> you know, he's, he was like, you're, the, you're my C team captain, and I'm like, coach, I love you, man, but uh, I'm gonna go my way and, and not continue this. Uh, that's how my my football career ended up. But yeah, lacrosse, lacrosse is an awesome sport. It's I like watching it in on college. Like it doesn't translate to the pros very well. Um, I don't know. If you ever, have you ever watched a lacrosse game on, on TV? I feel like during the pandemic, when ESPN was kind of reaching all over the place to show different sports, because a lot of the like major league sports were in in play, I feel like I did see lacrosse at one point. That's the thing with the stick and the net at the end, and you have to carry the ball, right? Oh, wow. So you have no idea what lacrosse is. What? <laughs> you my like you yes that is what lacrosse is but like you your knowledge of, of lacrosse is like very little then oh yeah that's all i know about it yes. yeah no i'm okay. not an, i'm not an, i don't know if you could tell i'm not an athlete at all <laughs> yeah yeah so you yeah, know that's lacrosse i played i had the long i played defense i had the long stick so it's about six feet tall it's a pretty cool game like when i to this day when i have trouble sleeping i think of lacrosse plays and it helps me go to sleep. You know, like when, you're, when your mind is racing for whatever life stress is going on in your, in your world, you know, I try and think of lacrosse plays and it helps just like ease my mind. So, so that's like a way that you relax because you do a lot in the company. So I imagine that prioritizing your time and prioritizing time for self-care and sort of, you know, quiet time, like that's important. Yeah, 100%. Viho life is definitely stressful. There's a lot going on. I mean, when the company is growing at the rate we're growing at, it's, it's a lot and it's, you know, it's always on your mind. But on that, like I am, uh, I'm big into mindfulness, meditation as well. I do yoga at least once a week. That's actually in the last few months, I've been going back into the studio, um, which has been really nice. I love doing yoga, um, kind of just like, you know, phasing out. I do think it's very important for, for all humans to like, you know, not look at a screen for a little and like let your mind just process life for whatever you're doing. So that is something I try doing. I, I meditate using the Headspace app every morning. So it is something that I, I do try and take care of myself, be present, 
not always the easiest thing, especially in the last year with the craziness of COVID and whatnot, but do my best. And how long have you been practicing yoga? For, what am I, 30 now? Probably for like five years. I'm like, uh, I got the body of like a 60-year-old man. It's actually, my body's been doing pretty good, but I hurt my knees back in, I think I was 25, 24, 25, and I was running a lot, and I was in like the best shape of my life, and I wasn't stretching. I mean, who's when you're 24, 25, nothing matters. And I did something to my knees that it was just so painful. And I was going to physical therapy, and, and um, I was dating a girl who liked doing yoga, and she slowly got me into yoga. And then from there, it's like it's a good workout. I really like the stretching aspect of it. It's great for your 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 mental health and mental well-being. And ever since then, I've just continued to do it. It's so beneficial. Yoga is so healthy. I got into it. I did it for a while. I was really good for like six months. I was doing it like twice a week because one of the hotels I worked at opened a yoga studio and all the employees got like a free month of classes. And I stayed after that. Like I, it was just, it felt so great. That buzz that you get after a really good yoga session, I, as I, that would carry me throughout my day. Yeah, I... I was doing it in front of my uh, TV. So, you know, a year ago from today, no one was leaving their house other than go to the supermarket, let alone go to a yoga studio. So I was trying my best to stick with it and do it in front of the TV. And it just wasn't the same. Some people can do that. But like, you know, 20 minutes in, I'm picking up my cell phone, checking Twitter, checking a a message from work. So going back into the studio is is something I'm excited. I've been doing. When I was in New York, I wasn't doing just recently, but uh, yeah, it's it's important. You got to find those things that uh, you know are are good for you in just to keep you grounded, your mental health, physically, mentally. It's key to have those things in this world. I grew up in a Spanish-speaking household, and I don't speak Spanish very well. I know a little bit of it, but the language was always a huge part of the influences around me growing up. Growing up in a Jewish neighborhood, do you get the chance to speak Hebrew? Do you speak Hebrew? I do not speak Hebrew. Um, So no one that I really grew up with would speak Hebrew. Um, And then let's like date back. So my grandparents, four of them, I got four grandparents, obviously. Three of them were born in America, so they grew up speaking English. Um, although my, and then my mom's dad, like during the Holocaust, like right before things got really bad in Germany, he came over to America. And um, he, he learned English when he got to America. But my grandparents, my great-grandparents, um, they never really picked up the English language really well. So, like, if anything I was going to learn, it wouldn't be Hebrew so much. It would probably have been German. Um, not that my, even my mom doesn't speak German. But, uh, like, all four of my, three of my four grandparents, their native language is English. And then my grandpa moved to, immigrated to America when he was under, maybe he was eight to ten years old. I forgot the exact age. So, English is... Uh, is, is what I learned. I mean, I have, this is a, a joke that I like telling people. It's like, if you speak three languages, you're trilingual. If you speak two languages, you're bilingual. If you speak one language, you're American. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> I'm not proud It's so of it, true. 
Yeah, like right. Yeah, I, I, and I was asking because you know, growing up for me, there was always a sort of silent pressure to learn Spanish. And again, I never did, and it's always been like uh, I don't want to say shame, but it, it's always been like a a regret of mine that I never learned it fluently. And I was wondering if in households of different cultures, if there is that similar pressure to learn like the language of your ancestors, the language of your grandparents. I did not have that that um, pressure. I don't. My, no, Good no, for you. Yeah, not, yeah, <laughs> my parents don't even have it. Speak it, but like, I do have an admiration for people who do speak multiple languages. Like some, you know, the we work with some of the um, some contractors in the Philippines here at Viho. Um, you you might have met them in a meeting or two. Michelle, who I I communicate with on a daily basis. Michelle speaks English, obviously. She speaks the native Philippine language. She is learning Korean and she might even speak another language. And I'm just like, that is just amazing. Um, and I, and I respect it, but I, I took Spanish in high school and I just never was able to stick with it. So I feel like it takes a really mature mindset to learn a language like i think i i had trouble learning spanish when i was younger but as i got older like even now i look at myself like i think i have the mental discipline to learn it it's just finding the time you know yeah and then what's trouble is so i did a good a good bit of traveling um i i studied abroad in rome and then like my first year after college i moved back to rome i worked for a travel company there i did i uh, did a little traveling in Asia and in South America. And as an American, you will travel to these places and you might know Spanish in like the basic words or, or Italian in the, the basic words. And you'll be at a restaurant and you'll be like, okay, I'm going to order dinner in Italian. I mean, it's, you know, pasta, it's water and it's vino. It's not so hard. And then the, the server who's ever helping you would interrupt you and be like, Listen, I speak English better than you speak Italian. Can we communicate it in English? And it just, you couldn't do it, so. <laughs> right. Yeah, the tourism, I think, in a lot of countries incentivizes the people to learn the language of the people that are coming to visit and spending all the money. Yeah, and, and English is, whether it's because of America or because of, of England, you know, I'm not going to take, like, America's the most, you know, all that great in, what, in this sense, but that's a whole other conversation. But I mean, like, English is the language that connects the world. You know, if you put someone from China, from the Philippines, from Latin America, they're communicating in English. So it's when most people are able to speak English, it makes it uh, even to, to pick up a language. It's like, where do you start? Because most people's second, second language would be English. A couple weeks ago, I got to talk to a doctor in India and I asked him about growing up, you know, learning uh, the skills that he has and what did he want to be and that kind of thing. And uh, he said that he had this immense pressure to learn English in his household because in places like India, English is considered the language of success. And that, like, you don't get anywhere in the world if you don't speak English, which is it's a it's an interesting mindset to hear from, you know, halfway around the world. Yeah, that's that is interesting. No, I, I was going to hijack the last five minutes of this conversation. Oh, please do. I was going to say, this is my first time doing something like this um, and doing like a podcast and having a interview that is a conversation. I was going to say, this is, it's pretty enjoyable. It's not bad, right? It's different than what a lot of people expect. 
Yeah, I was expect, and I listen to a lot of podcasts these days, and the podcast hosts, I obviously enjoy listening to them because if I come back to their episodes over time, but even when they have guests on that are can be fascinating people that aren't great talkers, um, it the interview is not great, even though the topic can be really good. And I've never had a conversation like this. Obviously, with friends, you have conversations that are about nothing for hours. But I've never done it like deliberately in an interview podcast way. And it is fun. I mean, this was, this was enjoyable. Yeah, this was very cool. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you liked it. One of the things I've learned from talking to so many people um, is this thing that like people don't get the chance to talk about themselves very often. And if they do, it's not for any particular length of time. They get to mention something about themselves, but then the other person is like looking to go to the next thing or looking to leave or looking to get out of it or or take the conversation and talk about themselves. So in a way, I feel like a lot of people get that benefit. Like it feels like it's a it's a it's a light it's a lighter kind of feeling being able to like say what you want to say about yourself and not have the other person like looking to get out of it. Do you know what I mean? I I completely understand. I completely agree. And it's, I mean, the truth of the matter is, is we all just want to talk about ourselves. You are most interested in your own self. So you're always interested to talk about yourself, which was, and I'm not one person to shy away from talking. So this was nice. I'm I'm glad. Uh, Last thing. Tell me what you would want all the other employees of VHO to know about you and your job and your experience working with them and for them and your time there? Ooh, interesting question. Um, Like, I'll give you a minute to just say whatever you want to say to those people. Yeah, what I would say is, so I joined VHO a year and a half ago, and, you know, I'm not the oldest employee here, the the most tenured time-wise employee here. But what I would say is, like, one of my, my greatest joys of being here is now I think the team is upwards of 150 people and I love leading the demo meeting and doing the new employee introductions in every demo where people just say their name for 30 seconds and and they're beaming with happiness um, because whether it was Jacob, Marilyn, Dean, whoever did the training for these employees did it so in such a these, these employees are, are very happy and proud and excited for the opportunity. And um, that is one of my greatest joys in this job is seeing the team grow and the level of excitement of all of these new employees who are happy to be there. They're excited to, to take on responsibility and just overall just you know adding to the positive culture that we have here. And that has been a, a real joy for me. Well, I think you touched on something as well that has a lot to do with the corporate culture that's fostered here. And as a new employee, I can tell you that it's something that you feel from the jump, that idea that everybody's happy to be working here. Everybody's happy to be interfacing with each other. There isn't that toxicity. There isn't that drama. And a corporate culture that lets a project like this, what we're doing right now, that lets this thrive. I mean, that's awesome, right? How often do you find that? Yeah, I completely agree. So that's why it's been great working here. And it's been great talking to you, Zach. This has been so much fun. I feel like I know you better now. This is great. I, I agree, Chris. And it, you know, I know it was really interesting, too. I, we don't have our cameras on. And I actually think that improved the conversation. I think so. 
I think so. It's especially in a remote job. It's nice to take a little while and not have to worry about how you look in front of the camera or like whether you're picking your nose or something. Yeah, and you just you focus more <laughs> on the words, on the the verbal communication. So that was I like that. I'm very glad you enjoyed this, Zach, and I, I hope you let everyone know how much fun you had doing this. I will. I, my goal is to talk to everybody. That I, I love it. I hope you do. VHO, The People, is produced by me, Christian Carrion, in association with VHO, the new e-commerce delivery service that's reinventing the online shipping experience. Visit shipvho.com to learn more. Look for new episodes every other Wednesday. This is Christian Carrion speaking. Viho the People is a Fat Pauly's Bagels production. And I actually had a lot of interest in potentially uh, becoming a, a writer, like a comedy writer. That was actually of, of actual interest to me. Uh, and I was actually at one point relatively close to moving out to L.A. and just trying to go for that. Micah Altman. I am from Minnesota originally. I currently reside in Philadelphia and I am the general manager of the Mid-Atlantic. I, I would say that job entails making sure our operations are running very smoothly uh, in, in all of my markets. My markets include Philadelphia, Central Maryland, uh, and next week, uh, Northern Virginia. Uh, and then it's also making sure that we can continue to uh, increase our volume in all of those markets uh, and try to make them as, as profitable as possible. So working very cross-functionally uh, with all sorts of teams, the client team, uh, central operations teams, uh, pretty much uh, all teams to, to some degree. Uh, so it's a pretty all-encompassing role uh, and just making sure that we're always aligned and, and marching towards our goals uh, is, is how I describe my job. Now, in my experience, from a professional standpoint, making sure a team is always doing anything requires a lot of time commitment and a lot of, in turn, self-care. How do you manage yourself mentally with all of these things on your plate? What are you, what are you into? What relaxes you? Yeah, great question. So, yeah, I, I will say this is a, a pretty time-consuming job. Uh, but at the same time, I find it very invigorating uh, and I get to make a lot of decisions that are very impactful. So that, for one, uh, makes this job fun for me uh, and allows the time to, to pass by pretty quickly. And then from like a self-care perspective, uh, I do try to get, you know, seven to eight hours of sleep a night. I do try to work out uh, between like three and five mornings or afternoons uh, every single week to kind of refresh my mind. Uh, and aside from that, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of all I have going on right now on the self-care side of things. Well, sometimes that's all you need. Eight hours of sleep a night is like, you're already five steps ahead of a lot of people. Yeah, I wish, I'm I'm I wish I got eight hours a night. Seven. I'm definitely right. between six and seven, but eight's the goal. Even that, <laughs> even, yeah. even six or seven is pretty good. Now, you know, I have everybody fill out this form when they sign up to do the show and I noticed in reading it that you and my wife have something in common. My wife trained in improv comedy for a couple of years. She went to oh. school for it in New York. And improv is something that 
is important to you or, or, or was a part of your life for a while. Is that right? Yeah, yeah definitely. I, um, yeah, I'll give some back on there. So I, I took improv classes in Chicago at like, it's called the improv Olympic or the IO. Uh, and so Chicago's I, Chicago, and New York are definitely the two best cities in the country for improv comedy. And Chicago in particular has two very famous um, studios. One is IO and the other one is Second City. Uh, and so there have been like a lot of very famous people that have gone through uh, the Improv Olympic doors, uh, a lot of SNL cast members and a lot of uh, very well-known comedians. And so uh, I was living in Chicago. I lived there for four years and I actually just wanted to find a, a hobby to do uh, during the weekdays just to break up the week a little bit. And so I just signed up for a class on a whim. It was every like Tuesday or Wednesday night, uh, three hours once a week. And I ended up taking classes for over a year from a bunch of really awesome instructors. And I made, made a lot of really cool friends there. And then eventually I was performing a, some improv comedy uh, and it was an absolute blast. I, I definitely miss those days. One of the things that I love about improv, which I'm not trained at all. My wife is, but I'm not. But I, I enjoy I enjoy comedy. And we'll talk more about comedy in a second. Awesome. But one of the things that I admired about improv comedy is the rules for improv are so applicable, at least in my experience, to everyday life. You know, you yes and everything. If something yes comes and, yeah. through, you, you accept it as part of your world and you build around it. Mm -hmm. And that that rule in particular to me... Uh, has been so helpful in creating a marriage and, uh, you know, navigating a, a, a sometimes tumultuous professional life and, and just life in general. I wonder if you have that same experience. Yeah, no, I, I definitely totally agree with that. Uh, so improv helped me in, in quite a few ways, but, but two, at least on the professional side of things is you're much more able and capable of rolling with the punches. Uh, so the first rule they teach you in improv is yes. And, uh, and so to all the listeners out there, basically, that means that no matter what someone says to you while you're performing, you just agree with them, uh, commit and then continue on the show. Like you never shoot down someone else's idea. Uh, and so I find that to be very uh, applicable to to work life where, you know, sometimes people will say something that you you like may not agree with. Uh, and so as opposed to being confrontational on the spot, you can maybe like you know, sidestep it or, or agree on certain aspects of what they said versus, you know, getting into like an argument. Uh, and then another thing that is is super uh, refreshing about improv, it just teaches you to work with all sorts of different people. Um, so, you know, you, you sign up for a class, there's just a bunch of random people in there that you've never met. Uh, and, and over constantly like training with them and, and, and doing this yes and work, uh, you really find a lot of things uh, that, are, that are awesome about everyone and you really create like a really great uh, relationship with everyone, uh, which is which is really enlightening and, and again, very, uh, very applicable to to like the work life. That's so true. And I also feel like it's healthy to be engaged in an activity surrounded by people who have the same vested interest in that activity. I mean, it's almost like going to see live music, like seeing a band or, or an artist live is great, but also the experience of being in a room with all these people who love it as much as you do is almost empowering in a way. Yeah, it, it's, it's totally awesome. And, and again, the, the people from all sorts of different backgrounds. So like I took classes with a lot of people whose for sure number one goal in life is to be a member of Saturday Night Live. Like that is what they're gunning for. Uh, you know, they are working 
just so they can take more classes, just so they can do more and more comedy. Uh, and then on the flip side of that, I had a bunch of people that I became friends with as well who uh, were very, very much in the corporate world. Uh, and we're just looking for a new skill set, just a way to become more comfortable in the office, uh, become more comfortable public speaking. And so you really had a, a really awesome background of people in the same class. And, and to your point, everyone's definitely working towards the same goal of just trying to improve themselves. And, and again, everyone's just trying to have a good time there, uh, which is unlike some other activities that you can sign up for. Growing up, where was comedy on your radar? Were you a class clown in school? Uh, to some degree, I was actually, uh, yeah, maybe at some point, I think in high school, I definitely became like a more serious student and probably less of a class clown. I think uh, my go-to has always been able to like say a one-liner or so that's relatively funny uh, versus, you know, potentially tell a very funny story. So I try to get in, get out, get a few laughs and then sit back down. Sure. I, I understand. I understand 100%. We are in the same boat. I And it's funny because I, I do a podcast outside of this and, and, and the format is pretty much the same. I just have unscripted conversation with people and it lasts for like an hour or so. But I've talked to a lot of improv comedians, a lot of stand-up comedians, comedy writers. None of those people were class clowns in school growing up. None of them tried to be funny when they were younger. It seemed to be the seed that was planted early on and sort of blossomed as they got older. And it's funny that the people who try to be the class clown never end up pursuing comedy. They always end up like working at Home Depot or something. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I definitely, uh, I would say overall, I do not like to draw attention to myself. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not one to try to take the spotlight. But if I can get a quick laugh and get out, I'm all for it. And that's great because improv... I feel like in improv, you don't need to be the center of attention. Like the art of it is building this thing together and not necessarily stepping out in front and being the star of the show, but just aiding in the creation of that world. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Actually, oftentimes, if you do go to improv shows, uh, oftentimes the funniest character is not the main person uh, for the bit. It's it's someone who's jumping in, jumping out uh, and and, you know, providing some comedic relief to potentially a a normal situation because uh, again improv they, they teach you to try to keep everything as normal as possible and, unless you're going way off the deep end uh, and so you need people who are more on the side to, to provide some comic relief sometimes to a, potentially like a serious conversation and of course who can predict when it's going to go off the deep end you, that's just that's just that's just a natural it'll just go there when it goes there yeah yeah <laughs> happens happens uh, almost every show but you know you try to keep it serious for as long as you can who are some of the people, if there are people, who are some of the people that you wanted to be like in the world of comedy? Were there were, were there actors or were there performers that you looked up to? Not not particularly. No, I was just more interested in getting up on a stage and, and just going for it. That's why I was much more drawn to improv versus stand up. Uh, it was just the idea of just stepping out on a stage with absolutely nothing planned. Uh, and then trying to make a show out of it. So I, I definitely wouldn't say I'm like overly obsessed with the comedy world. It was just this particular segment of comedy was was very interesting to me. And I actually had a lot of interest in potentially uh, becoming a, a writer, like a comedy writer. That was actually of, of actual interest to me. Uh, and I was actually at one point relatively close to moving out to L.A. and just trying to go for that. 
Uh, but then I think I discovered I'm too risk averse for that. And so, you know, here I am much more in the corporate slash startup world. That's a fascinating idea, though. What did you want to write? Were you into sketch? Were you into like, did you want to like write for late night, like one liners and jokes? Like yeah, you like anything like that is comedy writing uh, in, in any sort of capacity, like, whether that's like cartoon shows, kid shows, late night. I just thought that would potentially be like a really, really uh, interesting way to, to spend my time and spend my life, but ultimately did not pull the trigger. Uh, but I don't have too many regrets about that because I, I heard that can be a pretty brutal brutal life uh, and and few and far between actually make it very brutal very brutal i when i first graduated high school i wanted to be an actor and i lived in connecticut which is only like an hour and a half train ride from new york so i was going to acting school for a while and i swore that's what i wanted to do mm -hmm. until you realize what a lonely and soul crushing and challenging life that is and you know as you get older and i, I wonder if it's something that for a long time, I wondered if it was something that was specific to me or if it was specific to the process of getting older, that you realize that the things that you enjoy, you can find the qualities of those things in other venues. I mean, I come from a hospitality background, and I first got into that because you know, I've always wanted to be on TV. I've always wanted to be in broadcasting. And that job appealed to me because I got to like wear a suit and meet people from all over the world and make them feel welcome and make them feel, you know, engaged and, and you know, do that whole thing and like put on a show. Um, so I found a sense of fulfillment in that, that I maybe would have gotten from working in TV or, or, or working in broadcasting, but I got older, you know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that desire to, not have the spotlight on yourself get stronger as you get older as well. Yeah. And I, I definitely saw people, you know, in my improv classes who, I mean, they were sacrificing literally everything for just like a, a sliver of a shot at making it, uh, and, you know, power to them and, and way to go for pursuing their dreams. But, uh, you know, I'm also like a fairly analytical person. And so, you know, when I look at things like that, the, the analytical side of my brain is like, uh, very, very slim likelihood that this pans out. So I would, I would abort. Uh, and so ultimately, you know, I had a really great time with it and I, I love doing it, but I did not see it as my uh, primary profession in my life. And that is perfectly fine. And not having regret, I feel like is a, is a key element to success in making that jump from one, uh, one venue to another. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I absolutely. And again, it's not like I had Saturday Night Live like knocking at my door. Uh, I was very, very far from that. I'd, I'd rate myself as like average to slightly below average uh, within my improv classes. Uh, but, you know, the the goal for me to do that was just to get a new hobby and, and do something different. And, and that was accomplished. Is working for Vho your first time working remotely like it is for me? Um. Yeah, I mean, I had a taste of it. I mean, once the uh, pandemic started, I, I was working remotely because I was working at, at Walmart at the time. Uh, but yeah, I guess this would be my first foray into remote work, although I wouldn't necessarily qualify this as remote just because I am in the warehouse slash warehouses, uh, you know, not infrequently. So there's still some sort of in-person uh, role that I play. That's probably I I would imagine that that uh, working somewhat remotely and then also having like part of your week when you're in the warehouse is that how it works? Are you are you working remotely some days and then 
in person other days? Yeah, that, that's that's pretty much how I split my time. So I'm based in Philadelphia, uh, and we have a pretty decent sized operation there. So I'll I'll spend a, you know a few days a week in the Philadelphia warehouse. I'll try to get out to the Central Maryland warehouse, uh, you know, from time to time. And then Northern Virginia is opening up, so uh, you know I'll spend a week there, and, and again try to get back there. Uh, on a relatively regular basis. Uh, but the, the, the days I'm not in the warehouse, I'm, I'm just working from home. And what keeps you busy at home? What's the family situation like? Are you married? I am married. Yep. I've been married for two years. Uh, and my family situation is about to get real busy. My wife is pregnant and uh, we are expecting twins uh, in August or September. And that Wow. Be... Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Incredible. you very much. Yeah, we're we're super super excited. Uh, we're definitely we're not counting on twins, but uh, you know we're we're still very excited. And yeah, it'll definitely shake things up in my life. But uh, you know, this is it's super super exciting news, and I'm very very happy. It had to have been exciting when you first found out. Yeah, it was totally insane. Um, so this was you know we found out when the pandemic was still you know relatively roaring. Uh, and so I was actually unable or not allowed to go to the doctor, uh, you know, with my wife. So she was having her first ultrasound. Uh, and so I guess he turned on the ultrasound and immediately told my wife, uh, oh, you better call Micah right now. And so we, we joined a FaceTime and the doctor is doing the ultrasound. He says, here's the baby. And so my wife and I freak out, you know, we're smiling, laughing. It was so exciting. And then he pauses for about 10 seconds. And then he says, and here's the other baby. And then my wife and I just completely lost it. Oh my God. <laughs> it was like wow. so surreal. We had, we were just completely shocked, you know, uh, and I was in the parking lot, you know, yelling at my phone and obviously she was in there getting the ultrasound, but uh, it was definitely a very, very memorable experience. Uh, and yeah, that, that, that happened. I don't know. She's. Yeah, she's a few months away from, you know, being due. That's incredible. Mentally and emotionally, how does a father step up to the plate like that? I when it let, comes I to will... something because <laughs> when it comes to something so unexpected, are you going to let me know? Is what you're yeah, gonna say? <laughs> I'll let you know in a few months. <laughs> I think I'm still in the uh ignorance is bliss mode, but uh you know, as that due date arrives, I'm sure I'll I'll buckle down a bit more and and do as much reading as I can to try to try to set my expectations. Do you collect anything? I do collect. So my brother uh, is like a kingpin of this. He collects a lot of like rare and cool uh, liquors, like whiskey, rum, scotch, things like that. Uh, and I thought that was really cool. So I have a, a much, much smaller collection, but it, it is still nonetheless a collection. So uh, you know, sometimes these like rare bottles of liquor come out. Uh, generally, they're like scotch or bourbon, but increasingly you're getting some like rare rums and things like that. Uh, and so I, I was definitely more into this a few years ago because it was actually a lot easier to find these rare bottles. Um, and so we'd, you'd go to like random liquor stores or more high end liquor stores and, and hope that they would have these bottles. And you generally know when they are being released. Uh, and then you know, I would buy them and, and just sit on them and, and, coll and you know, collect them. Um, and it's it, to me, it's kind of like adult baseball cards. Like these are rare, cool things. Uh, and, you know, you can just kind of cherish them. Obviously, you can drink them as well. But obviously, uh, you know, some of these bottles are really expensive. And uh, there's no amount of money that you can give me to where I would open it and drink it myself. Um, but yeah, that is a collection of mine that 
I probably have like, I don't know, 15 to 20 bottles. Um, and it's, it's something fun and, uh, it's something that I enjoy doing when I, when I have the free time. Tell me about the crown jewel of your collection. What's the rarest bottle you own? Yeah. Great question. Um, so I own a, it's actually not even a bottle. I, I believe the term is a demijohn. It's like a ceramic jug and it's, uh, wrapped very nicely in this like wicker. Um, so it's a, it's a jug of rum, a, a, a gallon jug of rum and it was the last rum that was made on behalf of the uh, british navy so the british navy used to just have rum made for their sailors and so i i forgetting the year right now it's either like 1970 or 1979 so it's like the last uh rum made for the the british sailors and so i have a cool uh jug of rum uh from from like 1970. amazing yeah. Yes. Yeah, so wow. That was cool. That's I, so I found cool. That at some kind of high end, but not really uh, liquor store, like 45 minutes to an hour away from Minneapolis uh, that shares a parking lot with a gas station. So it was definitely a very unexpected find, um, but I pulled the trigger on that and it's, it's definitely the crown jewel. As somebody who collects rare vintage liquor bottles are you also interested i know i know you said you're not really interested in opening the rare ones that you get are you interested in liquor in general like could you tell me what makes a good whiskey like what qualities you look for uh no i definitely could not i mean i know like what i like uh but i'm definitely not the person who's like sniffing the glass of whiskey and saying that it has like vanilla notes or, or charred oak notes. Uh, but I can tell you whether or not I like it with a thumbs up or thumbs down. That's fair. I think yeah. you and I are in the same boat there. Yeah. Some people, some people get really into it. I have a friend back in Connecticut who collects, um, he collects whiskey in particular and uh-huh. he's, he is like, he is a savant when it comes to the qualities of a good whiskey and what you're looking for. And like you said, the notes and yeah. I, 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 do, I don't have it for that. No, I'm like that's... that with, I'm like that with pizza. I can <laughs> yeah. tell you a good or bad pizza and I know what makes a good or bad pizza. Yeah. But other than that. Yeah, no, it's, it, that's, that's not my forte. And every once in a while when I, I do meet someone like that, uh, I either have like one of two feelings, either one is like, this person is so cool and amazing and they know their stuff or, or two. And I think that they're just saying that to try to impress me. I can't help, but not like the person. <laughs> <laughs> That's very, that is very true. Yeah. That is, um, it's pretentious kind yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. I it's mean, like, I okay. mean, my friend. My friend isn't. He's 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 actually pretty cool about it. But yeah, there are some people who kind of make that part of their identity. Yeah, and I also really love reading, uh, quote unquote, experts' uh, tasting notes. Uh, I think like the funniest one I saw was uh, they gave a whole bunch of adjectives describing the taste of, of said whiskey, and and one of the ways they used to describe the whiskey was uh, tastes like a fresh tennis ball, uh, and I was just. <laughs> I mean, I had so many questions as to why on earth that would be a tasting note, but, uh, you know, it it is really funny to, to read some of those. One, why is that a legitimate tasting note Two, how is that beneficial to anybody (laughs) drinking that? Yeah. Yeah. Did that connect with anyone on any level as, as far as, you know, I'm going to buy that whiskey now. (laughs) What do you enjoy most about working for VHO? Uh, yeah, great question. I think think what I enjoy the most is the people. Um, so like, like you mentioned, I think Viho is like primarily a, a, a remote company. 
but I feel like I've been able to connect with people uh, very, very easily, which is super refreshing. Uh, and I also really think uh, that the the culture of Aviho shines through. It, you know, uh, Ita and Fred they really want to make this a people first culture, uh, and I think that's easier easier said than done. But I've you know I've been here two months and change, and I can really see that uh, effort on full display day in and day out, and and constantly seeing changes to make uh, everyone's lives easier is is a huge focus for the company. It's so interesting that you mentioned how long you've been here because I've been here for maybe half as long as you have. So I've been here for like maybe a month and a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to me that in that short amount of time, the employees can have such a strong opinion of, you know, what they like about dealing with the people in the company, what they like about the values, about the candor and about that human quality that, you know, you and I mentioned it with Zach. It's something that you feel as soon as you quote unquote walk in, mm -hmm. you sense that this is a different type of environment than what you might be used to in the corporate world. And it's a very welcome change. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to add to that, it's really refreshing to see how nimble the company is and how fast we're willing to make changes. If we do think it will improve, you know, any facet of the culture or operation. And so that's also incredibly refreshing, uh, especially coming. I was coming from Walmart e-commerce, uh, which is obviously a gigantic, gigantic company, uh, and things just don't move nearly as fast. Yeah, good luck doing a podcast with those people. <laughs> I don't think they they have one, as far as I know. I definitely wasn't invited to one. No, I, I don't. I, I don't think so either, and neither was I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think that what you mentioned though has a lot to do with the way the organization is set up. Somebody in a previous conversation I had for this show mentioned that it's a very flat structure, mm -hmm. and that everybody is within an arm's reach. Whether you want to talk to your immediate supervisor or you want to talk to the guy who founded the company, they're all right there. And you know, there may be a delay in terms of response, but the fact that they are there and are reachable. Um, I love it. I can't imagine how I got by in in corporate type jobs and in, in the professional world in general without that um, that open door policy. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, again, to add to that, like I've reached out to people from all different levels or facets of the organization and every single person has been more than welcoming and, and more than welcoming to, to share their time and connect with me. Uh, and again, like that's not the case in most places. It's pretty cool working here, isn't it? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's pretty cool. <laughs> I would too, definitely. <laughs> Micah, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. I hope this experience was what you thought it would be. Yeah, this was awesome. I'm, I'm definitely uh, putting out the word to, to everyone to come on the, the podcast and, and share their thoughts. This, was, this, this definitely exceeded my expectations. I'm very glad. And, and please do that. I would, I would love to, I would love for, I want to talk to everybody who works here and I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm determined one by one. We're going to make it happen. That's great. No, thank, thank you very much for having me. And, uh, yeah, if you ever need, uh, a, a, a sec, a, you ever, if you ever need a repeat show or interview a guest you've already had before, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. You're going to be the first one I call. Thank you so <laughs> much, like, Micah. I right. appreciate it. Great. Take care. Yep. You too. Bye-bye. Viho the People is produced by me, Christian Carrion, in association with Viho, the new e-commerce delivery service that's reinventing the online shipping experience. Visit shipviho.com to learn more. Look for new episodes every other Wednesday. This is Christian Carrion speaking.
Viho the People is a Fat Polly's Bagels production. Which is a terrible answer because it's like such a non-answer, but um, it's what I'm sticking to. <laughs> well, that's okay. I'll just cut this part out. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Take it off. My name's Emily Wertinen. I am based in Chicago and I am a driver ops manager, operations manager on the driver team. I primarily focus on driver acquisition and growth, um, which kind of looks like setting our budgets for um, ad campaigns. Uh, sorry, can you hear the train go by? Uh, I live really close to the, the L and it like- I, I think I can, me. but I love it. I love it, just okay. use it, keep going, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, great. Um, I'm really prepared. Um, so, uh, <laughs> well, you don't control so, the trades. It's okay. I guess that's true. Although I, I have started getting to know the schedule, and like now is a little bit risky of a time because it's a little bit later in the day. But um, you know, good things to know for next time. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure to put that in the in the me- in the message I sent to everybody else who's going to do this. Please be aware of any trains. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an important thing to think about if you live across the street from one. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, what I do, um, I focus on setting our budgets for our ad campaigns, things like that, um, tracking what our new driver growth looks like, and then also a lot of, you know, launch preparation on the driver side, um, a, you know, myriad of different things, but um, all focused on the driver driver side of the business. Well, happy launch day. Thank you. Yes, I'm very excited. It sounds like um, drivers showed up, which is a success. That's always, the, that's always a good first step. Yeah, they all showed up. <sighs> yeah. Well, yeah. completing a task like that, I imagine, has to come with some sense of like, <sighs> just some release, right? Um. Well, I haven't looked at the data yet, so there is like a like a set of of, of release for sure. Um, but I will feel a lot better when I've looked at the data and and so so getting through the I guess starting line for a market to me is is level one success. Level two will be if the data shows that you know we had enough drivers and and they delivered successfully and all that all of that. So um, I. I am a little bit of an alarmist in general, so uh, yeah, little little sigh of relief. But I'm really excited to look at what the numbers look like. I noticed that alarmist type people, because I think I can be to a certain degree. Alarmist type people were raised by alarmist type people. Is that true for you? Um, kind of. I think I would say my mom. I, I so I wouldn't necessarily classify myself as an alarmist. I kind of go from zero to panic um, and then back to zero um, regularly throughout the day. Um, That's almost the definition of alarmist. <laughs> okay, but... I'm not like alarmist, but I do tend to ring alarms fairly okay, but, free. <laughs> but I, 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 so I guess the, the difference is like I, I generally internalize it, so I don't... I don't like go, everybody panic. You know, what if nobody shows up? That's just what I think to myself. Fair, fair, constantly. okay. 
So I'm right. like an internal alarmist, but um, I would say um, my my dad very much not. He's like always level headed and always just kind of like goes with the flow and whatever happens happens. Uh, my mom is the complete opposite. So I think I fall somewhere in the middle of all of that. One of my life goals is to be the kind of person that just goes with the flow and like whatever happens happens. Just super cool about everything. I try to be. But I feel like once you start trying to be, that's the first step towards like not being that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I I over time have evolved to like compartmentalize what what I I guess go with the flow and, and what I don't. And um most things I don't really plan or I go with the flow in general, but um but at least for work, I try, I try to um, be a little bit more stringent with like caring about things because, you know, work and it's important to care. Uh, it's always important to care. Hard to live across the street from a train if you don't have a job. Right. Exactly. Yes. Um, but in terms <laughs> of go with the flow, uh, case in point, did not think about what happens when a train goes by uh, and you're talking to someone on video. So um, I... I moved here before, as I was transitioning to, to VHO and um, did not think about the fact that I was setting every, like my work from home setup directly across from a train that constantly goes by all day. So um, has adjusted kind of like the fact that I always wear headphones now, um, but you know, you live and you learn, you go with the flow. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's very true. Um, what plays in your headphones while you work? Ooh, well, so I I don't like play music in my headphones because I like to have like a little bit of an ambiance. Um, and so I actually play it on my um, my I don't want to say the name Alexa. Um, so she doesn't she doesn't go off. But, she's listening. <laughs> she's always listening. Um, yeah. So I have a couple of, of different like vibes that I go through depending on what I'm focused on. So the alternative R&B playlists on Spotify or generally what I like use to focus. If that's not working, I'll use like focus music. Um, and then if I'm just like easing into things, a little bit of jazz. Um, and yeah. And, and then if I, <laughs> sometimes when I really need to focus, uh, the best music for me to listen to is actually like, like top 40, like most popular songs, um, like to dance to, <laughs> which sounds like it would not help you focus but um for some reason that just really helps me get in the zone get in the zone and get it done i think there's something to that and i think that that's probably the reason why so many offices just play like the radio there aren't like specialized stations for like work when you go to an office i think it's a lot of that music is just mindless enough that if you want to listen to it you can but it's very easy to sort of tune it out and let it fade into the background yeah, yeah, there, there could be a really strong theory to that. And I think like I, um, I can't focus to like, there are certain kinds of music that I can't focus to that are generally focused music. So I'm glad that they gen they tend to play like popular music, but like the acoustic version. Um, because like classical music and like those that kind of genre, I can't listen to to focus. Um, because I grew up studying classical music. And so I, I actually end up focusing more on whatever piece of music is playing than I, than I do on what I'm trying to accomplish. So, well, my next question was going to be how important is music in your life outside of work, but tell oh, me wow. about, 
Tell me about your time studying classical music. Tell me how how that how that developed as an interest in your life. Yeah, um, how it developed as an interest. Um, uh, when I was well, I guess throughout my entire life, I've always wanted to do everything my brother did, and so um, and I also got dragged into a lot of his things. So when I was four, my brother started taking piano lessons um, in like this group class, um, and. I, so I had to sit in because, you know, what else do you do um, when you're four? Uh, and so I started like picking up on like the rhythms they were clapping and like some of the, the different, like more rhythmic things that they were doing. And so um, they didn't generally like let younger, like they had an age cutoff that was like five or six, but they let me join the class because I was already like picking up on everything. So I, um, yeah, that's kind of where it started. And just continued from there. Um, it, it was always something that I like did in my like personal time. Um, and then I, I played a lot of sports in, in high school. Um, and for a minute I thought I was going to pl uh, play college hockey, but I'm too short. Uh, and you know, amongst other things, like not good enough to play college hockey but <laughs> there's that old thing right <laughs> right uh yeah that's a little bit of a wrench in the in the plan but <laughs> um yeah so when I was figuring out what I wanted to be when I grew up um I you know looked at everything that I was doing and I was like oh wow I'm, I'm still playing piano you know 18 or well 10 years later uh maybe that's something I want to seriously pursue so um I started taking lessons with a professor at a uh somewhat local college um and when I was in high school to like prepare for auditions and, and then I studied music um all four and a half years I did half of a victory lap um and uh yeah now I don't use my degree at all but I use it recreationally so I feel like it still counts it totally counts of course it counts especially recreationally and especially as probably some type of self-care or some kind of, you know, but you're engaging in something outside of work. So I feel like that's totally healthy. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I don't play as much um, anymore. I, I try to every once in a while, I kind of get the urge and I pull all the books back out and I start, you know, practicing again and playing some of the old uh, classical, you know, bangers that you play. <laughs> um, <laughs> the top 40 of the class of the best of the best classical music to right. dance to exactly yeah that's usually what i what i go for when i'm uh feeling nostalgic so um yeah so i i don't really play as much but i do um sing in a barbershop chorus um which kind of which definitely fills the kind of like need of having music in my life as like a pastime and to you know decompress all that good stuff now, I can't believe this is information I'm going to be using now, but I do this podcast outside of work with all kinds of people. I actually had the pleasure of talking to a barbershop quartet singer about four months ago, and wow. he sings competitively. He's in a team. He lives in Texas, and he sings competitively as part of a team. And I asked him if he could sing, and he said it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound like crap because I'm not with my team. So what role do you play in your team? Yes. Well, so I am in a chorus. I'm like actively looking for a quartet. So if anyone else sings barbershop, uh, look me up. Um, but I sing um, baritone, which um, 
is somewhat similar to um I think in like classical singing it would be similar to like an alto one um so in barbershop there's um lead bass tenor and baritone so lead sings the melody bass sings like the bass line tenor sings all the super high stuff and they like sound super squeaky all the time um because that's where all their notes live and then the baritone fills in all of the other notes so um i am curious to know if that person sang baritone because that would well i guess any of the lines by themselves are, are not that exciting but or anyway um but the so the the idea behind barbershop is that it is you're supposed to be so in tune that you create um a lot of overtones in it in every chord that you sing and and so it's based on a lot of um, seventh chords and a lot of ninth chords um and which all have four notes and so the baritone tends to get whatever note is left over um in a melody line and so to a regular listener it sounds like you're hitting all of the wrong notes uh if you're singing by yourself but when you're singing in a quartet or in a chorus um, you actually shouldn't be able to hear the baritone if or it should be very difficult to hear the baritone sing at all if um, the group is in tune because the notes will just like fall into the overtone series. Right, because you're just an element of that team. You're contributing to that one unifying sort of sound. Exactly, yeah. In a very greedy way. I feel like I'm not doing my job as as an interviewer or as a podcaster if i don't ask you to sing but i also don't want to put you on the spot oh, oh. <laughs> that uh gives me anxiety <laughs> oh does it does it really no okay no no then don't then don't it's totally okay totally okay yeah no i mean like i i am confident in my singing voice to to the extent that i can sing in a group or in a quartet and like you can hear my voice but not like me singing a solo um or like karaoke like i'll sing backup to anyone in karaoke um but i prefer to be a backup singer um like i want to be the person who helps everyone stay in tune like that's that's the role i want to play in life as, as a singer and vocal i love it because that's also kind of the role you play within the company in a way yeah that's that is true wow great connection oh my gosh i didn't even see it <laughs> <laughs> i want to know your karaoke song I'll tell you my Ooh. karaoke song first. It's Never Too Much by Luther Vandross. I'm really into like 80s R&B. That, oh. is, that is my karaoke song. Wow. Oh, no. Do I have a karaoke song? So, so here's the thing. Um, I, I don't have a go-to karaoke song, but I, because I will always sing when someone else is singing, no matter what. Um, and like whether or not I have a mic. Um, and so like if someone else is singing, like I'm singing to support them. Um, and I don't know. I just like, I love all the songs and like every song that is a good karaoke song, I feel like is a great song, which is a terrible answer because it's like such a non-answer, but um, it's what I'm sticking to. <laughs> well, that's okay. I'll just cut this part out. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Take it all out. <laughs> She's yeah. boring. She doesn't have a karaoke song. <laughs> well, what are some good karaoke? I feel like, I feel like there are classics. Like, to me, the ultimate karaoke song is Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond. Ah, uh, yes. That is, that is a classic. That's a good that one. That is, like, the ultimate, like, you can't, you can't not enjoy that, whether you're singing it or whether you're watching somebody sing it. Yeah, that's And a, it's one of those a... songs that you don't even need a different level of alcohol to enjoy it. Like, whether you're at a 1 or a 10, it is okay. Oh, yeah. 
hundred percent. And it's it's like a crowd pleaser too, because everyone can you know join with the with the so good, so good, right? Yeah. That's... Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the bump, bump, bump. Yeah. Oh my god. Of yeah. course. Yeah. So, have you ever experienced stage fright as somebody who doesn't? 100% enjoy being the center of attention. You'd rather be kind of in the background. Do you ever experience that? All the time. Um, really? Regularly. Yes. Um, yes. I have really bad stage fright and um, um, I classify it as performance anxiety because it's not just on a stage. Um, but actually fun fact. Well, it's not really a fact, but um, a lot of musicians have really bad performance anxiety and we'll take like prescription level beta blockers um to help them kind of like reduce the anxiety for performances um i never got to the point of of taking beta blockers but i did learn that uh bananas have beta blockers in them naturally so i had like my pre-performance routine was to like down two bananas which i don't know if that's like a good thing or not but (laughs) (laughs) i think Uh, like after three potassium poisoning starts to like like the risk of that starts to elevate a little bit yeah that was so that was and and also i would like to caveat that that was when i played the piano i can't imagine eating two banana like slamming two bananas and then going out and singing on stage would would not I feel like in certain venues that could be a show by itself. This person is going to eat two bananas one after the other and then play the piano immediately. I mean, yeah, maybe that's what I should have. That's the direction I should have gone with. But (laughs) (laughs) Uh, probably, probably for the best that I didn't. But um, but I think so. I think you're better off. I'm sure someone could do it. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody has a role, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Some days you're the banana, some days you're the piano. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's the philosophy of life, I think. <laughs> so how long have you been doing this barbershop thing? Like that, it just, and, and, and even like when I talked to the other guy who used to, who used to sing, and by the way, I think he was a tenor. Um, ah. But even when I talked to him, it just sounded like so much fun. And it, it, it just, it sounded incredible. How long have you been doing that? Oh yeah. Super fun. Um, I have been singing barbershop for... Ooh, five years, six years, something like that. So um, I have a, a dear family friend that I've known all of my life, or it's my, my parents' friends, um, who's been in the organization. Uh, so barbershop is is um, historically men and women se- like sing in separate organizations. Um, and they're just starting to like have like mixed quartets with, with men and women. But, um, so she, my, my family friend has, has been in sweet Adelines is the, the organization that I'm in. Um, she's been doing it for decades and, um, and tried to kind of like hint at like, Hey, I sing in this group and like, it'd be really fun if you sang too. Um, but I actually know her, we, she's in our like hockey family. So when I played hockey, um, I played with, uh, on a team with her sons. And, um, and so I was very into like the sports and I was like, uh, no, thanks. That's not cool. Um, I don't want to be in your like old lady singing group. Uh, and that was kind of like my (laughs) narrative, my narrative for a very long time. Um, and then after I graduated college, I went and traveled for a bit. I came home and I was like, okay, I have no job. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't really like have any hobbies or friends around. And so she was like, we're having a guest night. Uh, you should just come and like check it out. Maybe now's the time. Now that you're one of the old ladies, kind of. Um, 
And so I went and um, this was in like 2015, I think. And I never stopped going. I uh, just signed up and dove right in and have loved it ever since. So what about Barbershop attracted you to it? Something had to have like grabbed your attention. Yeah. Um, so as a pianist, I have like a very um, analytical approach to music. Uh, we we tend to have um, be more focused on like music theory and um, precision and things like that. But then also with like the artistry, it's very complex. Um, pianists are very complex. <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh so the thing about barbershop that I really enjoyed is that the whole purpose is to sing at the best level that you can to be the most precise um, and to and and to accomplish a goal with that precision. And so um, I, I it really like and then also the 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 theory of like the music theory of barbershop, I think, is really interesting with um, primarily using like the seventh notes and the and the ninth or seventh chords and the ninth chords and things like that. And um, there's like Pythagorean tuning, which um, I had not heard about before. So it kind of like opened up this entire um, world of, of music theory that I had not really explored, um, but then also um, really satisfied the, my need to have something musical that was also technical um, and not just like singing for funsies, like at karaoke. I'm going to read something from the thing that you filled out because I have everybody fill out the thing before I make the appointment and have a conversation with them and all that. So oh, one no. of the questions is, what is your main passion in life other than VHO customer service, all that? Your answer was proving that women deserve to exist and thrive in predominantly male spaces, whether by being in those spaces myself or celebrating slash lifting up other women who are doing so. I wonder if that doesn't enter into what attracted you to barbershop to a certain degree. Because like you said, it is a rather, uh, from a gender standpoint, segregated activity. Men sing separately from women. And it and, and just for, from an outsider perspective, it does seem like a rather male-dominated hobby, male-dominated activity. Was the opportunity to participate in a a group of strong voiced women, something that attracted you to this particular activity? I think it's something that has kept me engaged, but I don't think that that was necessarily something that like drew me into it. And it's something that like, that I, I stay engaged and, and get more engaged um, because I see the, the ways that it's segregated and that, and like wanting to like bridge the gaps. And so I, I don't think it was something that drew me to it, but wanting to create a more equitable space is something that I, I think definitely plays into like one of my passions with uh, being involved in it. Actually going through the interview process, that was one of my uh, main questions. Um, I think for everyone <laughs> that interviewed me um, was, you know, like, I guess like, what are, what are your views on, you know, creating an equitable workplace and, and diverse workplace and like how how are you doing and how like how is it tracking and um and I think one of the things that really drew me to it was that there it wasn't necessarily like oh we care about this and we're passionate about it and like we have women on our team woohoo it was like it was very um a, a very honest answer from everyone that it's like it's something that is a focus um and something that that is being worked towards. And I think I've seen that play out um, 
you know, as people join the team and as, you know, like we're looking to to bring more people on, um, I think there's like an, a very intentional focus and in, in not just uh, um, hiring the next person, but hiring the next person that's going to be um, a great fit for the team, um, irrespective of, of, you know, gender or, or racial diversity. And so I think that's something that is, um, is uh, different than from other you know, companies. And, um, and I, I think it is something that um, I can really stand behind and that I really uh, connect with. Um, yeah, and, and I enjoy VHO for so many reasons. But I, I think one of the, the reasons is, is that I feel like I have um, a voice here that, um, you know, if I have an opinion about something, you know, of course, if I like approach it um, <clears throat> tactfully, um, that it's heard and that it, it's not just heard, but it's, you know, ingested and, and, um, and that, you know, that from the top down and the bottom up that everyone's really focused on creating a, a, a culture that, that everyone wants to work in. And, and it's something that I really, um, really value. I agree 100%. And I feel like I've probably said it during each of these conversations, but as somebody who's not only brand new to working for VHO, but brand new to working for a remote company, period, because th this is not my background at all. Um, it's something that's noticeable from the jump, that there is a concerted effort to promote this idea of a of a diverse workplace. And I think that that does so much to contribute to the overall morale, the overall happiness of the team. And for that to be such a... Um, to use a phrase that I just started using when I worked at VHO, for that to be such a top of mind concern is remarkable. I love it. And and I can't imagine, again, I, I can't imagine how I got by in corporate settings without that focus on diversity and that focus on morale. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. And I've, I've been in workplace situations where it was not that and there were gender based microaggressions. And it just makes it so you don't realize until you're kind of like in that position, um, how difficult it makes the the workplace situation. Um, and you know, you don't realize it. it's like you're fighting against a current that you don't know is there. Um, until you step away from it and realize that that there was a current there in the first place. And so um, I think that has also really made me more perceptive to the fact that like, that's not the case here. And that, um, um, and it, it like feels really, <laughs> really good to not be working against, um, you know, any kind of like cultural current um, and, and to be able to like work as a cohesive team. And it's great. It's such a valuable it's such a valuable perspective to have on that particular problem, because I think that, you know, s speaking for myself personally, I think that I went a long time without understanding what a pervasive problem that was, you know, because you being a man, it doesn't affect me. But one I forget when it was. It was it was a few years ago. But I remember somebody told me that, like, every woman that you talk to has a story like that. If you were to ask any woman you know, she has a story about being marginalized in her workplace, about being about, you know, like you said, these like gender based microaggressions. And I just it just forced me to look at it from a different perspective. And it, it, it's funny that you never know what somebody has gone through until you until you talk to them, until you find out. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 
And it's, it's, especially when it comes to the like microaggressions, it's something that like, um, as women, like talking to other women in the workplace, you see it, you recognize it, you go like, Oh, did you see that? And they go, Oh, yeah, like, how ridiculous, like, eye roll emoji. Um, But talking to a man, they'll completely miss it because they're not looking for it. And as a woman, it's like the first thing, like, the first thing I see when there's any kind of gender based microaggression, because it like jumps off the, you know, screen or page or like, in the in the meeting, it's like the, the thing that you hear. Um, but if you're not listening for it, you you absolutely won't hear it. And I think that's it's the same with with any kind of like, microaggression. And, and, you know, I think every person will, you know, have some kind of microaggression that they like, don't realize that they're doing or saying or whatever to another group, like of, of how someone identifies. But I think it's really important to make sure that like, there's awareness to it. And, you know, if I do something, I want to know that I said something or did something that someone that that someone didn't agree with. And I want to know how to how to correct it. And so um, I always try to if, if something comes up, or I notice that in coming towards me, I, I try to always, you know, have, you know, a potentially uncomfortable conversation to make sure that that's not something that's um, that, that that is something that that the other person is aware of because you know you never know um, if they're aware of it and 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 if they aren't then hopefully they will be going forward and if not um, it's just an uncomfy conversation. <laughs> but you know what? The most I feel like sometimes the most uncomfortable conversations bring out the best results. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I um I like to lean into those tough conversations, but. They yes. do give me hives, but um, they're worth it. <laughs> <laughs> totally worth it. Totally worth all the hives. Right. Well, I I think I have everything I need. Do you have any questions for me? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I hope you got <laughs> hope you got some content. <laughs> well, we'll be in touch. <laughs> oh, good, great. Awesome. <laughs> no, I did. No, this was this was a pleasure, Emily. I feel like I've gotten to know so much about you. I feel like you. You went from a flat to a round character, and I feel like that that alone is 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 really cool. Woohoo! Success. That's absolutely. I, mean, I think the goal. <laughs> it, it, awesome. It's the goal. Yeah, <laughs> it's the goal. You achieved it. We're good. Yay! Well, it was, yeah, it was great chatting and and getting to to know you a little bit better too. I'm I'm glad. I hope this experience was everything you thought it was going to be. Everything and more. VHO, The People, is produced by me, Christian Carrion, in association with VHO, the new e-commerce delivery service that's reinventing the online shipping experience. Visit shipvho.com to learn more. Look for new episodes every other Wednesday. This is Christian Carrion speaking. Viho the People is a Fat Pauly's Bagels production.